Hi, welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast, a podcast about how to use technology to solve challenging technology problems for your organization. All right, so new episode because it's a new month. And today we've got Dan Olson. And Dan's someone that I've been following for several years in the product management space. And what I love about Dan is we can kind of go anywhere. And uh, me and him were chatting one night and I was just pinging him with questions about what do you think about Scrum? What do you think about this with Agile? What do you think about backlogs? What do you think about user testing? He could go anywhere. He had answers for everything. He had opinions and it was awesome. So we are super excited to talk to him today. He's been doing it for so long. I mean, he's worked it into it. He's written the book, The Mind the Product Folks Call Him the Lean Mean Product Machine. I mean, this man is accomplished in our world, right? <laughs> yeah, he's done a lot of talks, a lot of speaking and a lot of training and consulting. So he gets to see how tons of different businesses are building products you know, what they're doing right, where they can improve. And so today, we're going to specifically talk about building a first version of a product, you know, MVP, how do you test it effectively and efficiently without going so deep with, you know, an investment? Like, how do you get the most for your money and your time? Yeah, and I can't wait to ask him about nuclear submarines. It's it's pronounced nuclear, actually. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for correcting me. Okay. (laughs) So hope everyone enjoys this interview with Dan Olson. Let's get after it. Well, Sean, today we have a good friend of ours, Dan Olson, and we've been coming to know Dan through his work and uh, meeting him and understanding what he does to work with companies and product teams and help them build better products. And so Dan Olson, hello. How are you? I'm great, Joe. And Sean, it's great to be here with you all today. Excellent. So would you mind introducing yourself and just telling us a little bit about what you do? What's your role? What are you doing with people in this world? Yeah, no, I, I do several things. So all of them, though, relate to product management and building great products. So uh, what I largely do these days is speak at conferences and events. It was a pleasure to speak at your product momentum event. That was a lot of fun. And more generally, just provide training. So I do a lot of public and private training workshops to train product teams on kind of modern practices on product management and product development. I also coach product leaders and teams, and I still do uh, some hands-on consulting, which is a lot of fun, applying some of the concepts we're going to be talking about today, like actually defining MVPs, uh, actually doing the wireframes myself, writing the screeners and interviewing users. And um, I also wrote the book, The Lean Product Playbook, which kind of captures a lot of the advice and my perspective on, on how I think about building great products. So Uh, And in addition to that, I run a meetup. I live in Silicon Valley and I just love bringing together thought leaders and having a community of people here. So for five years now, I've been uh, hosting a monthly speaker series called Lean Product. Um, And I think that's most of what I do. That's all? Yeah. Well, also actually there's one more thing. Once a year, I I help co-organize a product leader summit, which is coming up on the 19th of September. Uh All right. How long have you been doing that? This is our fourth product leader summit. Fantastic. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Luckily, we have a team of people because it's a lot of work, as you know, to put on an event. Yeah, so we know. Um, but yeah. Cool. Good luck with that. So when we had dinner a few weeks back, I remember you telling me that you worked in submarine design That's for the right. Navy. So first of all, publicly, thank you for your service. Yeah, thanks. That's a big deal. But I'm interested to start off our conversation with this question. How do you equate that experience to the development of software products? Yeah, it's funny because I uh, we talked about it and, you know, it was the coolest job right out of college. So I was an electrical engineering major. Uh, I was Navy ROTC, so they had paid for my scholarship. So I had to find, you know, the right part of the Navy that I thought was going to be the best. I interviewed at Naval Reactors and was lucky to get there. So I basically, the way I describe it 
is like NASA for submarines. And so my title was technically elite, like engineer and then lead engineer. So it was a very technical job. They sent us to six months of training in like nuclear mechanical engineering and you had to have a tech background, all this stuff. Then when my five years were up, I went to business school. That's what brought me to Silicon Valley. And that's where I learned about product management. I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. You get to like work on product, but not actually build it, interface with customers, think about the business. And then when I got, I was lucky to get my first product management job at Intuit, that's when I, as I started doing the job, I'm like, oh, this isn't too different from what I was doing on the submarines, which the commonalities I think are one, we're working on a complex product, you know, submarines, a complex product, the Quicken, um, you know, application that I was working on had been around for a long time, had tons of functionality, was, was relatively complex, maybe not quite as complex as a submarine, but still very complex. And because of that complexity, it requires, you know, a large group of cross-functional skills to build and execute that product, just like we did at Naval Reactors. And so at Naval Reactors, we divided up the responsibilities along certain lines, and you would basically have to get alignment or agreement. We actually called it concurrence on anything you recommended. So if there was a certain system in the submarine that I said, yep, this looks like a good design, I'd have to go get official sign-off from these other people. So I was totally used to this idea of, hey, we're developing this product in a cross-functional team manner, and we've got to get buy-in from everybody and sign-off that these requirements are good and this design meets the requirements. You know, So obviously it wasn't software and it wasn't in the commercial sector, but those aspects of kind of building a complex product cross-functionally were very, very similar. And so it felt very natural to me, even though the domain was different. Very cool. It's a great little uh, segue there. So... We always have a focus for every episode, and what we want to talk about with you was kind of like user testing, user research, and specifically, you know, how can you do as much of that as possible, potentially before you build anything, building a new product, or maybe doing as much as you can as you build a very smaller, minimum viable product, as they say, uh, type of product. So can you just maybe tell us a little bit about your philosophy with all of that and maybe set that up uh, for the rest of the conversation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... I think, you know, whenever you're building a product, you either explicitly or implicitly are making tons of assumptions and hypotheses. And there's just a million different decisions that you have to make, whether you realize it or not. And so if you just rush in and build a product, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and risk in all those assumptions. And the probability that you got all of those, like, just perfect when you build it, it's just super, super low, right? If you take scenario, like take, take two scenarios, scenario one, we envision a product, we build it, we launch it. And then we realize all the things that we didn't get right uh, versus scenario two, where we envision the product, we come up with a prototype, we test it, we figure out what's not right, we fix those things, then we build it and launch it. You know, obviously the second way is a lot smarter, it's less risky, it's higher ROI. The one thing that comes up is, well, but it's not as fast because you've got to test. But I would argue in the grand scheme of things, it's actually faster because building is expensive, it's slower, and it's harder to change. It's funny because... A lot of my larger clients, tech debt is a big thing that comes up. Tech debt starts accruing that like the second you write your first line of code, that silent tech debt is building up and you don't realize you're locking yourself in with certain things, right? And the way that plays out is if you build it and then you slowly realize, wow, we didn't get the signups we want. Maybe we should go talk to you. You start to realize, wow, this isn't quite right. And then you go to the engineering team to change stuff. Then they're like, well, we've already built a database this way. We've got these API calls this way. It's just a lot harder to change, right? So I just think that's my general idea is to like, you know, articulate your uh, hypotheses, ideally try to figure out which ones are the riskiest, 
you know, and that's what we want to test so that we're being more mindful and spending our resources. You know, that's what the essence of lean is all about is a smart use of resources. It's not about being skimpy or cheap or cutting corners. It's about being very mindful of your resources. And the way I like to generalize it is you should invest your dev resources, which are usually a scarcest resource in proportion to your level of confidence that you've got, right? And that confidence comes from evidence that we've got from user testing, either qualitative or quantitative data that gives us evidence, that gives us confidence that should inform how we invest our resources, basically. Yeah, I mean, it, it just makes so much sense when you say it out loud and you just talk about the math of it, like your assumptions are probably wrong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, minimum viable product is one of these terms that is both overused and super ambiguous because yeah. no one seems to have a single definition. What's your definition of it? Yeah, no, I think, and it's funny because, you know, anytime you have, uh, it's a buzzword, right? Anytime you have a big move, and actually, you know, it existed before Lean Startup, but it became much more popular with Lean Startup. But anytime you have one of these buzzwords, it's, you know, potentially going to be interpreted differently and misunderstood by different people. And so MVP is the poster child for that. You can go online and you can find quotes that say, uh, you know, hey, a landing page is an MVP, you know, and then in, I remember seeing this and then all the comments, people are like flaming the person and saying, no way, are you crazy? It's not an MVP. And you know, it's bad because a lot of companies, they're like, well, we actually believe in a minimum lovable product, MLP. We believe in minimum viable feature or minimum sellable product. So they're coming up with these alternatives to basically have it match what their expectations or definitions are. So I think it is one of these terms that's not well understood. For me, the crux of the difference of opinion, and I do this in my workshops, I'll be like, who thinks a landing page is, is, is an MVP? And like, you know, a third to half of the room will raise their hands. So I'm like, who's like, heck no, there's no way that's an MVP. And then the other balance of the room raises their hands. Is that the P is what trips people up, that product, the word product. And so the hardcore people are like, how can a landing page be a product? It's not a product. It's, you know, I could just put whatever up, whether or not I can build it. You know what I mean? And so um, basically the landing page people, they'll go, well, you know, you're learning from it. You're getting some learning. You're testing your assumptions, your hypotheses. So that, that's valuable. So the way I get out of that trap is just elevate it up one level and call them all MVP tests, basically, right? So we call it a test. And so an MVP test is basically anything that you're learning about to, you know, either validate or invalidate one of your hypotheses, right? And then an MVP, without the word test, we can reserve for the things that do are kind of prototypes of your product. They're actually testing the product experience and the product concept. So that would be things like, obviously, live product is a true MVP. Um, Interactive prototypes are in true MVP. You know, Wizard of Oz, concierge type MVPs. That's what I reserve for true MVPs, where you're actually testing the hypotheses about the actual product concept itself. So uh, both are useful, you know, both are useful, but they each have their different role. And in the book, I have a framework dividing up the true MVP versus the MVP tests and like product versus marketing and quant and qual basically as a way to divide all the different ways you can test your hypotheses up. Yeah, it's a good point you make about people getting stuck on the P. Like when we talk to clients, they're always wary to make it too small and, you know, it's got to provide enough value and all these other things. And there's that quote by Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn of, you know, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's a good quote. I think people use it, like a lot of quotes, people use it for their own agenda, right? Or to further their own devices, right? I think the intent of it was, and some people take it literally, the intent of it was at the time and still today, people have this idea, kind of a waterfall mindset, like, well, I've got to get this thing perfect before I launch. And the more I work on it, the more I features I add, you know, 
the better it's going to be. So that's, that's kind of the mindset, right? And I've been there. I mean, you know, I, I've been in that boat. Every time you launch your product, that's one of the toughest decisions to make is, is it good enough or not? And, and we can break that down uh, according to my product market fit pyramid. We can start out with the simplest thing of functionality. Does it have the right set of functionality? Is it missing some key piece of functionality? That's the top debate that people just get wrapped around. And, you know, someone's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're launching without feature X. And so then what happens? You put feature X in and then someone else, some key stakeholder, key customer says, oh, I can't believe we won't have feature Y. And, and usually what happens is not actually the end customer. It's people within the company who are worried about the end customer and trying to act on their behalf. And you just get the slippery slope where the next thing you know, it's like the kitchen sink and it's no longer an MVP and your time to market has been pushed out, right? So this is one of the toughest decisions that teams need to make is what really needs to be in that MVP. So I take this quote as uh, ended up to the bias of people to try to make their MVP too perfect. So that's why he said it the way that he said. And it is one of the toughest judgments out there in the product world. Yeah, perfection is the enemy of learning, really. Yeah, yeah. If you wait to get the perfect product out, you have no opportunity to learn. And the longer you go between actual learnings, right? Uh, yeah. And I've actually been there. So like early, you know, when I was at Intuit, we were, you know, working on uh, connected software and we would write, you know, I walked into a product management machine and we would write these thick MRDs, like market requirement documents, right? As a young, eager beaver PM, you'd spend all this time trying to write up, write it up. And what about this? What about this? And at the end of the day, a lot of people don't read that thing. And the idea is, I think the analogy I think of is like an archery bullseye, like a target, right? And the metaphor is, well, if I just spend a little more time and think about it some more and write it up more, I'll get closer and closer to that bullseye. And the reality is, you don't even know what you don't know yet, right? So it's, a, it's an illusion that if you just spend more time and getting it closer to perfect, I don't think anybody can launch a perfect product because there's no way to know all the things you don't know until you get it in market. So these techniques of testing before you build are not to get it perfect. It's just to eliminate the big obvious risks and uncertainties to get it closer to the proverbial, you know, bullseye, but you don't even know. It's kind of like the matrix, like there is no spoons, like there's no target. You don't even know what you're shooting for. You may have your target customer wrong, right? There's so many things you can be off until you get it in market. You know, you don't really know. Right. I struggle with MVP a little bit when we haven't first defined the minimum viable audience. Right. Like I think you have to start with your MVA before you can come up with a good MVP for that MVA or otherwise you're building for who, right? No, totally. And that's why the foundation of the product market pyramid is target customer, right? You got to define who is this for. And sometimes in my workshops, once in a while, someone be like, why don't we just start with customer needs and problems, which is the second layer. I'm like, well, you know, just solving this problem in a vacuum doesn't make as much sense as like, you know, each target segment is going to have distinct needs and distinct preferences. And so I, I agree with you you should be rooted in a distinct target customer audience. And, and even MVP, right? So you've got several steps to go through. First step, who's my target customer audience? Second step, what do I think their needs are? And then a pass on what do I think the underserved needs are? You know, which ones yep. are undermet, underdelivered on? Then you get up to a value proposition, which is how are we going to meet those needs in a way that's better or different than the competition? And then you get to feature set. And that's where MVP comes in. MVP is saying, okay, given all that pre-work, and hypotheses, what's the feature set or functionality that we need? So I agree that you should have a handle on all three of those things, like who your target customer audience is, what are their underserved needs that you're going to deliver, and how you're going to meet those needs in a way that's better than the competition. Right. And then once you achieve that product market fit with that minimum viable audience, you can then decide, do I continue to expand on the feature set or do I go for a larger audience? Yeah, that's right. The other quote I love all the time, 
times, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good or don't let the great be the enemy of the good. I use it all the time, you know, with people because when I see product teams trying to perfect their product uh, and they've gone past the point in my mind that's optimal. Yeah. And then once you've launched, then you can say, all right, cool. Do we need, you're going to find stuff you didn't know. The question is just how many issues and how, what's the magnitude of those issues. Once you work those through, you can say, should we add additional value and functionality for this segment or should we identify an adjacent segment that we can grow into? Definitely. So do you think it's possible to launch an MVP for multiple personas or multiple audiences at once? Or do you recommend just kind of going at one, picking one to hone in? Well, it's tough. I think that personas are a great way to get clarity on who our target customer is and get alignment on the team. And again, especially your V1 persona, it's just a set of assumptions or hypotheses, right? Um, And you need to think about the market opportunity you're going after, and they may be multiple personas, right? So for example, like let's take, Uber or Lyft, you've got riders and you've got drivers. So it's like at the end of the day, you're going to have to create enough value for both because if you create this awesome app for drivers, but there's no riders, it's not going to work and vice versa, right? I love to rank order prioritizing things. I call it ruthless prioritization. So I'm always happy to say who is the number one that we need to do. And I think too many times people have too many personas. Sometimes I go into a client and like, yep, our UX team or our marketing team create personas. Here's our 10 personas, you know? And then it's like, okay, that's great, but which one are we really focusing on? And a lot of time, there's not the rigor of thought, which is do we look across the 10 to find out what's common across them and what's distinct across them and what's the relative importance of each of these segments to our business? And if you do that, you can, you can help prioritize. So, you know, in the case of Uber, perhaps if I had to, I would do drivers first, right? Because you kind of need to do that. But then I would quickly follow with what are we doing for riders? Or, you know, it'd be easy to cop out and say, let's do both in parallel, right? But at the end of the day, again, I like to have a ruthless number one or Airbnb with guests and hosts, you know, same kind of thing. In more of a B2B context, you have the end user and then you have the economic buyer usually as two distinct personas. Sometimes you might also have an admin use case, right? Again, there is not always the right answer, but I would generally try to start with the end user, make sure we're meeting their needs. And then also, unless the buyer was incredibly, incredibly, you know, was the dominating persona, that you could focus on the buyer needs. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to get the end user experience right. Even if you get them to purchase it for, to get them to renew, you got to get the end user experience right. Um, so I do like to focus on one. It's okay to have an opinion about what the other ones might be. Um, but I do like to focus on one at the beginning if you can. Got it. And I think, you know, the traditional thought about MVP is, you know, just going back years and years is, you know, just get it out there. Don't worry about how it looks. Just make it work. You know, just right. make it work. And you've got an, another pyramid that I think is great because it's just so simple. And people yep. just look at it and be like, are we doing yep. this of, you know, an MVP has got to be a little bit re- functional, reliable, useful, and delightful. Yeah. And that pyramid I adapted from someone who adapted it from Aaron Walters. So Aaron Walters was the head of UX design for MailChimp. And I talk about this in the book. I remember the first time I used MailChimp, I actually just kind of like smiled and maybe even laughed out loud because it was such a fun user experience. The tone was funny. The UX was great. The visual design was great. And they had a couple of delighter things in there you just didn't expect. So when I think of delight, I think of Aaron Walters and what he did with MailChimp. And so not surprisingly, he's the one that created this framework that the whole point of it, like you said, the bottom of the pyramid is fun. And I modified this. These are my words now. Functional at the bottom. Next layer up is reliable. Next layer up is useful or use actually usable, I think is my word. And the next level up is delightful. And the whole point of, in my mind, my take on the whole point of this pyramid, one main point is to elevate the discussion because, you know, there's still some people that aren't quite focused on usability, but for the most part, that ship left like, you know, 15 years ago, 
Yeah. Everybody knows even if you're a B2B product, it's got to be usable or it's not going to work out. The whole point of this framework, in my mind, was to elevate the discussion beyond that and, and talk about Delight. So if usability answers the questions, can users use your product? Delight answers the questions, do they want to use your product? How do they feel when they're using your product, right? And so that's one point of it. The other application of it was, as you said, Joe, was most people misuse MVP that don't understand it. And they say, okay, okay, we're not going to launch all the functionality. I got that it needs to be a subset. But they launch and they only launch a set of functionality and they ignore reliability. They ignore usability. They ignore delight. They say, oh, you know, it's okay if it's buggy. It's an MVP. We'll fix that later. It's okay. We'll do the UX later. It's just an MVP. Uh, and then what happens when you test that, if all you've got is a subset of functionality that may or may not even be right, but poor UX, poor reliability, and no delight, there's no way that MVP is going to test well. You know? So then you test it, and then it's going to bomb, crash and burn. And then those people, same people that misuse and didn't understand how to do an MVP, will turn around and say, see, this whole lean agile stuff, it's baloney, doesn't work. <laughs> Let's go back to doing a waterfall. Right? That's what happens. So, and that general idea of like kind of blaming the process or the tool after kind of a suboptimal implementation or application of it happens a lot. Anyway, so basically, and I'm not trying to say it's going to be perfect. And this kind of, in a way, goes against that Eric Reed Hoffman advice, right? So obviously, if we could not be completely embarrassed, right, that'd be great, right? Embarrassed is like, what does that mean? Embarrassed by missing functionality, embarrassed by bugs, embarrassed by poor UX, right? Embarrassed right. by lack of delight. You know, it's okay to be embarrassed on some of that stuff, but we got to get enough of it right. I would argue before you build, right? Because otherwise, you're, again, you're wasting those resources. So back to this idea of, well, you know, people run into this trap of slippery slope of, oh, well, customer X is going to complain if we don't put feature A in there. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, if we just say, okay, uh, we're worried about that too, let's just put the feature in. You're not really testing anything. You're biting the bullet. You're writing the check either way, right? Yep. And, and so what I love to do, this is where especially low fidelity can come into play. Early, early in your process, you say, you know what? I kind of do a little Jedi metric. Sounds like you have a hypothesis that if the MVP doesn't include feature A, customer X will be really upset. Did I capture your hypothesis properly? And then, it was like, you know, then they kind of look at you like, uh, are you Spock? Like, sure, yeah, that's my hypothesis, yeah, right? It's like, great, like how might we test that hypothesis? Because if we just put the feature in there, we're not testing the <laughs> hypothesis, right? So the main way to test hypothesis is actually to show them a wireframe or prototype without the feature and see if, any, you know, if anybody cries uncle and says, what the heck's going on here, right? And people are surprised time and again that they don't even notice it. Because when you do an MVP, if there's extra features in there, customers don't go, hey, why'd you put this extra feature X in there? That doesn't make any sense. I would never use it. They don't bother. They don't care. It doesn't bother them. It's no skin off their back. They don't even comment on that. But if you're missing a key feature, they will certainly scream and say, hey, Where's my Salesforce? I don't see Salesforce integration here. There's no way I could do this without Salesforce integration or whatever it is, right? So that's why I like to do it early in the process, even in wireframes. Wireframes are a great way to test just the absence of functionality. Did you get the right feature set? Did you get the right overall, you know, kind of information architecture and UX design? Cool. So you mentioned doing user testing, and we'll definitely talk about that. But I love asking guests about all these buzzwords like we talked about earlier. So product market fit. Yes. What does that mean to you? And how do you know like when you're approaching it or if you've met it and like do you pivot? What do you do? Yeah. So that's another buzzword, right? Uh, it was actually coined by Mark Andreessen back in 2007 and then became popular with Lean Startup. And, you know, I think unlike MVP, product market fit, people talk about it pretty simplistically. At least they used to before I wrote my book. That's part of why I wrote the book is like, they'd be like, oh, you know, Box, yeah, Box succeeded because they had product market fit. 
Oh, sadly, startup X, startup X failed because they did not have partners. So I just talked about like this big true false condition of either you were gangbusters successful or you weren't. And that's not really that helpful of a definition. We already have a word called profitable. So this must mean something else besides profitable, right? So for me, the essence of what it means is that customers basically are agreeing that your product is providing more value to them than the other alternatives that are out there. That's the essence of product market fit. And that's why the, in the product market fit pyramid, you know, I guide people through the hypotheses to try to ensure that's the case. And the way I think about it is there are five key hypotheses you need to get right enough in order to achieve product market fit. You need to get your target customer right enough. You need to get the underserved needs that they have right enough. You need to get your value prop, which is how are we going to meet those needs in a way that's better than the competition right enough. You need to get your feature set, which we've been talking about, right enough. And you need to get your extra design right enough. They don't have to be perfect. It's like a big five-term multiplication or logic and, right? And if each, any one of those is off, it can get in the way of product market fit. And the core of product market fit, the next question is, how do you know if you have it? Once you've launched your product, right? Uh, the way you know you have it, I like to describe as like, you know, imagine we have the world's slickest marketing person or salesperson. So they create the world's best landing page that has 100% conversion or the world's best salesperson that always has 100% win rate. So we're able to get people in our door. They get in the door, they kick the tires on our product, but then they realize it didn't meet our needs, right? They're not going to come back and use it again if it doesn't meet their needs in a way that delivers more value than other products. Conversely, if we have the world's worst salesperson or the worst world landing page, but somehow a customer gets in there, if they get in there and kick the tires and realize, wow, this thing actually is useful and valuable, they're probably going to come back and use it again. So that core essence of knowing you have product market fit is that repeat usage, right? That's the core essence of knowing you have product market fit is that repeat usage of people. They checked out your product. They tried it out, and then after using it, they came back and used it again and again and again because it's delivering value for them, basically. So once we launch, the way we can track that is through retention rate. Retention rate is a formal way to track that repeat usage over time. Uh, and so the question is, well, pre-launch, what can we do? And that's what these techniques are. They're fuzzier because we don't have thousands of data points and things like that. But we actually need that qualitative depth, and we need to get our fingers dirty and really talk to people to understand, to refine those hypotheses and revise them. And so the way that works is really more just you're doing wave after wave of user tests, getting user feedback, figuring out what's wrong, what hypotheses do we get wrong, what features are missing, what UX do we get wrong, you know, what messaging or positioning do we get wrong, and iterating and trying to pattern match and addressing those, coming up with a new iteration of your product, doing it again. And the way pre-launch, you know, is basically you get to a point where you no longer have any like major complaints about the prototype that you've got. And people start saying, wow, I could really see this is useful. You know, when is this going to go live? I could really see using this. So it's not as uh, black and white and as hard as like a retention number, but that's how you basically, you know, you can see the progress as you do wave after wave pre-launch. Makes sense, right? You're scratching the itch. If your product is solving the problem, they're going to come back and use it again. And then you know you're on the right path. Right. Um, we call that a, one of our loyalty metrics, right? They're coming back, they're using it. That means they're somewhat loyal to the product. Right. Yeah. All right. So the tagline of your book, the subtitle is how to innovate with minimum viable products and rapid customer feedback. I think we beat up the minimum viable product yeah, yeah. part of that. So let's talk about the rapid customer feedback part. Right. Definitely. And the innovation part. So how do you define an innovation? Well, basically, I think an innovation would be like, hey, we think I would call it like a, a product concept. Like we think, hey, if we came up with this value prop, then it's going to meet these underserved needs for this target customer. And we think this feature set 
described by words, right, is going to deliver that value prop. So then the last piece of it is once we've got that all kind of figured out, our MVP hypothesis or candidate, the next thing then is we need to actually manifest it with a user experience, right? Um, we need to do that anyway to build it. But as we've talked about, I'm a huge fan of using those prototypes that you have to do anyway, or using the mock-ups and designs that you have to do anyway to tell the front-end team what to build, to use those as a validation tool to go out and talk to customers. And so all it takes really is uh, a high enough fidelity and a high enough interactivity prototype to use. So prototype is a very generic word. And it's funny because back to the submarine world, the first use of prototype was in the submarine world. So you can imagine when you build a submarine, if you get something wrong, it's really hard to change after the fact because it's literally welded metal, expensive components. So they actually would build a full-scale wooden prototype. They call it a prototype of basically the whole thing. And then, as you know, I think some of you were nuclear trained, they also have prototypes of submarines sitting parked at the dock so that you get to test drive the real thing. So a prototype is just, you know, representation of the real thing that lets you, you know, test it with customers. And you can do rough testing with wireframes, right? Wireframes are good to see, hey, is there a key functionality missing? Does the overall layout make sense? Does the navigation make sense? The information architecture make sense? And um, Balsamic's a great tool for that where, you know, it's got built-in clickability or tapability. If you add a menu item, it has a place to say, okay, if the user taps here, where's it going to go? And then the next level up, that's good for rough stuff. The next level up where you can really uh, get a lot of great feedback and where I spend most of my time is in clickable or tappable mockups, basically. And so here, you now you have higher fidelity. You know, a lot of times the wireframes are grayscale and they're rough and they don't have images. And that's on purpose, right? Because the other thing I talk about a lot is the iceberg of UX design. And everybody fixates on the visual design, right? So the number of times I've taken like high fidelity mockups to a key stakeholder and like the first thing they say is, you know, the team spent all this time fretting about target customer and needs and MVP feature set and value prop. And we show the stakeholder the mockups and they go, what's this color of green you used here? I don't really like that green, right? That's like the least important thing at that point. So the wireframes tend to be grayscale. So you can just avoid that and kind of put horse blinders on that. But then you get to high fidelity. Your designer exports some high-fidelity mock-ups from Sketch or Photoshop or Illustrator. And then the cool thing is using a tool like InVision, you can create uh, a good enough experience where you go and you create these rectangular hotspots so that when somebody clicks or taps there, it goes to the other screen. And you can't string together everything. It's obviously not a fully interactive product, but you can string together what we call the happy path. And so I love testing there because you learn so much. And you, again, you haven't done any coding. And in the book and in my talks, I talk about a case study where I did that, and we were able to pivot super quickly. We just tossed out the old design, started from scratch, and took everything we learned from the first round of tests, uh, and we were able to iterate very quickly and, and significantly improve the product market fit. So that's the general technique that I like to use is you use those, you do one-on-one -on -one tests with customers. I like to do waves of like, you know, five to 10. Eight's usually a good number, but some people want more data points. Um, and some people at the end of the day, it's funny, I talk about Oprah versus Spock, where Oprah is the master of qualitative one-on-one -on -one interviews, and Spock is the master of like logic and analysis, the quantitative. And some people are, have such a Spock bias that even 10 users, like, it's only 10 users, you know, it's only 10 users. How do you know? It's not statistically significant. They get tripped up on statistical significance. And what I love to tell them is like, well, if nine out of 10 people couldn't figure out how to register, you don't say, let me go stop. Let me get 10,000 more data points to make sure my chi-squared calculation works out. You, you probably have a problem, right? You probably have an issue. Right. You got to be um, kind of mindful that 
And there'll be time later. Once we launch, then we can get, you know, hopefully we have hundreds or thousands of customers and then we can look at larger sample sizes. All right. So let me test my understanding of your answer to my questions there. So you'll know you have an innovation when your customers agree and that you're getting engagement. You're moving towards your ultimate goal of adoption and traction, right? So that's how you know you've got an innovation and you got to innovate and you've got to um, rapidly get customer feedback so you continue down that path towards more innovation. It all sounds a lot to me. It relates to the Steve Jobs quote that everybody overuses about my customers don't know what they want until I show it to them, right? Right. You got to get something out there to test. Right. And this plays really well with your, you've got a diagram out there about problem space versus solution space. Right. So I'd love to open it up to have you talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, related to that, you know, it's funny because there are Steve Jobs quotes out there and people always say, well, Apple, they're notorious for not doing customer research. But if you look at some of the quotes he's gotten that I use in my talks in the book, like they're very customer centric and they're very, you know, it's not technology looking for a problem, a solution looking for a problem. It's really like, yeah, of course we want to know what the latest technical capabilities are, but we have to figure out how those end up solving a problem for someone. The other thing that comes up that people use a lot is the the Henry Ford quote. If I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a a faster horse and not have ever envisioned a car. I love that quote, but I have an insertion there. He didn't actually say that. And if you do the research on that quote, some some clever consultant figured out that uh, there's no evidence that he actually said it, but it's a great quote anyway. Yeah, yeah. But the point is people like to misuse that quote to say, well, why do we need to talk to customers? They are not going to invent a car for us. Like That's what people misuse that quote, in my opinion. Right. And I say, yeah, of course not, because they're not electrical engineers and mechanical engineers. They're not software programmers or designers. It's ludicrous to expect your customers to just tell you the next product to build, right? It right. doesn't make any sense. If it were that easy, we'd all ask our customers what they wanted and we'd all be yeah. building the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly, right? You know, the whole trick is, you know, your job is to figure out the answer to the, all those key questions of who's our customer, what are the underserved needs, you know, how can we meet them in a way that's better, different? What functionality and UX design is it going to take? Your job is to do that. And so you're making all these hypotheses and assumptions in the problem space like about needs and customers. Uh, but you can't test those. The way to test those with customers is to actually then you create a solution space artifact, you know, ideally a prototype or a live product. And that's what you test with customers, basically. And then you get the learnings from that. And then what do you do? You have to go back and revise your problem space hypotheses and assumptions. And then iterate and create a new solution space artifact. I love it. Yeah. So it's like this dance. You're doing this dance. You're using these mock-ups and prototypes as a way to get feedback. But then you're going back and revising your mental model, basically, right? You, you know, again, they're not going to tell you how to improve the UX design. Oh, yeah, this flow is bad. Go do this. You're just going to see they're getting stuck at point X. And now it's up to you to figure out the best way to do that. So along those lines, the thing about the car and horse quote is a lot of times people say, well, we're doing disruptive innovation. Customers can't even have a point of view about this thing at all. And I'm like, that's baloney, right? It's baloney. Like one, so many people think they're doing disruptive innovation when they're really not. Like it's just, they think they are. They don't understand what disruptive innovation means, which basically means if you look at the importance and satisfaction framework that I have, whatever the high watermark is today for satisfaction, like whichever product is the best at meeting a certain need, right? Disruptive innovation means you basically recalibrate that scale. And what it used to be a 10 out of 10 on that scale is now like a 5 out of 10 on that scale or a 2 out of 10 on that scale. That's what true disruptive innovation means. When you achieve like order magnitude levels of satisfaction that are higher than the current solutions provide to that need. Because the needs in the problem space don't change anywhere nearly as quickly as the solutions. Solution technology waves come and go relatively quickly. They can. The example I list in the book is 
taking the need that people like to listen to music on the go. That's a need that a lot of people have. They've had it for a long time. The first solution to that was probably like the portable FM transistor radio that was battery powered. And then we had Walkman, right? And then we had CD players, right? And then we had portable MP3 players. Then we had the iPhone or the iPod. Now we all just use our phones. So we've got five or six technology waves, but the fundamental problem didn't change at all. So the bottom line is you should be able to articulate how is your potentially disruptive innovation creating higher levels of satisfaction? What need is it doing a better job on? Everyone else is doing this in 10 seconds and the new technology lets us do it in three seconds. Or for everybody else, the cost per unit is 200 bucks, but this is going to let us get a cost per unit of 40 bucks. So even if customers you know, can't envision your, what your disruptive product is going to be, you should be able to articulate what the customer value is going to be to them. I want to pull on something that you said for the audience here. And that is the point of the product team is figuring this stuff out. Mm-hmm. It's the mm-hmm. whole point of developing a custom software product in the first place. That's right. So that's powerful. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the best products are created by the best teams. And right. what does that mean? It means not only, you know, the first thing everybody focuses on is individual skill level. Oh, they must have a great designer. They must have a great front end developer, front back, front, right? That's part of it, but you don't need the best. What's really important is, how are they collaborating throughout this the whole journey? Because it all starts with discovery at the beginning, right? Customer empathy, right? Yeah. And that's how you discover those unmet needs. You have hypotheses about unmet needs, and then you go and you, t- you test and validate or invalidate them. And it's great, you know, specifically problem space, solution space, you know, the designer's job is like, they, they should be involved in that so they know, but then their job is to help explore the solution space. I think that's another thing that teams know too, is assuming we, we wave a magic wand and say, you have a really, really, really good understanding of your customer and the problems and the value prop. That's all problem space. The next important phase is great. Now, what is the best solution to meet that? And if all you do is come up with one mock-up and pursue that, then you haven't really explored the solution space at all. And obviously going from zero to one mock-ups is great because zero mock-ups get you nowhere. But what happens is people don't do deliberate divergent thinking. And at the end of the day, talented designers and design teams that's their main value add is, okay, given that we have a clear understanding of the problem, let's explore the solution space. You know, we could go with this kind of a mental model for the UI. We could do it this way. We could have a menu. We could have a drop down. All those different ways of doing it. You know, there's value in solution exploration. And then obviously there's, it's required, you know, you want to have talented people developing it as well. So again, like teams that excel at that journey of, hey, getting clear about our hypotheses and how do we test them. Uh, and explore the problem space, explore the solution space, explore the tech solution space as well. Okay, given this design, what are the ways we can implement it now with technology? Should we use this framework or that framework? Or which backend database should we use? So I think good teams, you know, it's less about, obviously they need to have a certain level of skill, but it's really about how much shared vision and collaboration they have throughout that journey to build a product. Makes a ton of sense. Well, we're coming up on time. So let me ask a question I think might be fitting for us to close with just before our last standard question we ask. You know, we've talked about MVPs and what do you build? What don't you build? You know, how far do you go? Who do you do it with? Can you just talk a little bit about the value of saying no as a product manager? Yes, 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 definitely. It's really important. And the funny thing is, you know, I like the joke about the product manager's motto and how it's like Spider-Man's motto. So Spider-Man's motto, a lot of Marvel fans know, is like with great power comes great responsibility. So I like to jokingly say the PM motto is similar but different, which is with great responsibility comes no power. So the funny thing is a lot of times no may seem a little harsh for a lot of product managers. So just to be clear, even if you don't say no, it's like, hey, no, not now. Not now is a knife use them. Because the reality is the life of a product manager, even outside of just defining what the feature set should be, 
is there's way more ideas and things that could be done than you have bandwidth to do. That's true with your engineering team, right? You only have so many full-time dev equivalents. Uh, and the same thing with just your time, right? That's just the reality of it. So by definition, there's more ideas. So it's not saying no forever. It's just saying not now, not for this MVP, not for V1.1, not for this time frame, right? But it's really important because if you don't say now, and I work with a lot of teams where they don't, right? Um, my favorite definition of strategy is it means saying no. And there's another Steve Jobs quote where he's talking about innovation. And he says, innovation means saying no to a thousand things. He's like, people think focusing means focusing on the thing that you're, you're working on. But focus actually means saying no to all the other things. And he says all those thousands of other good ideas. So he's not throwing them under the bus and saying they're bad ideas. He's acknowledging that those other ideas are good. And so I like to you know, take his quote and just say strategy means saying no. You know, if you think about the counterexample, not to pick on our prize sales friends, but they have a quota and they have an incentive, right? So if they're out talking to a prospective client and the client goes, well, is your new product going to have feature A? What does the salesperson say? They say, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, just signed that $3 million contract. Oh yeah, we definitely have feature A. They come back to HQ. Hey guys, I signed a $3 million contract. We got to put feature A in there. You got to do it. Then the next salesperson goes to customer B, right? And customer B goes, well, is it going to have feature X in there? What do you think they say? They say, they say yes to everything because that's their incentive, right? So saying yes to everything is the opposite of being strategic, right? The definition of being strategic means it's a choice that's not easily reversed. Because if you can just change your mind the next day, then it wasn't really strategic. It was just a decision. It wasn't a strategic decision, right? And so back to saying no, again, to tie it back to something we're saying, MVP is the toughest part to say no. It's one of the toughest spots to say no, right? Or not now, not for the MVP. I'm not saying we're never going to build it but it shouldn't be in the MVP. And again, you can use that hack where it's like, well, why don't we do a test of a wireframe or mock-up without it instead of just biting the bullet and building it? So I agree uh, saying no is important and it's tough. I mean, it's no to this target segment. We're going to test this one first. This is the highest one first. It's no to, well, are we going to include this other set of needs in our value prop, right? Not now, not for V1. And it's no to the feature set. Love that. The more you've defined who it is you are actually serving with your product, the more you've defined who you aren't serving. Right. And the more clear you are about that, the more focused you can be on what problems you are solving and what problems you aren't solving. And that's, that's how you really can focus on building a powerful product that will be a true innovation in your market space. That's good. Good answer. Thank you. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think the key, the trick is, are you building the mental model internally to know when to say no and when to say yes? right? It's not about arbitrarily saying no or yes, or just kind of using your gut. It's like, can I explain why I'm saying yes to these three features for MVP and why I'm saying no to these three features for MVP? That's the key, uh, I think, is building that mental model based on the evidence and, and testing your hypotheses over time. All right. Very good. Well, we have one question we ask all of our guests, and that's what book are you reading now that you or that you've read, read recently that you would recommend to our product audience, people that are passionate about software products? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, I have several. I'm going to not say no. I'm going to have a big MVP. If people are intrigued by the ideas I've talked about, I would definitely recommend my book because it goes deeper into that. Of course. Um, the book, specifically to answer your question, the book that I most recently read that I would recommend to other people is Jake Knapp's book, Make Time. It doesn't have anything to do with what we talked about today, but it's just a great productivity book. Um, the audio book is especially engaging. Uh, Jake and his author, Jay-Z, read it. It's only five hours long, but I thought I was a pretty productive person, but they definitely gave me a lot of tips to be even more productive. And then two books I recommend related to the topic we talked about today. I'm a big fan of Laura Klein and her work. She's actually written several books. Her first book, UX for Lean Startups, is a really good book on this front. And then Steve Portugal 
has a book called Interviewing Users. He's a user researcher that thinks a lot and has a lot of advice on the user interviewing front, which we didn't even get to. We didn't even get to how to conduct great interviews. So definitely check out his stuff. Wow. Thank you so much, Dan. This was amazing. I got a lot out of it. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to plug? I have a website. It's my name, dan-olsen, O-L-S-E-N.com. I post all of my talks up there. I don't blog a lot, but occasionally I will. I, what I do is every year I do a roundup of the top product conferences. So if, if you want to see the lay of the land for product conferences and find one to go to, they're up there. My speaking schedule's up there. And then for people in the Bay Area, or if you're visiting the SF Bay Area, uh, I mentioned that monthly product speaker series that I run called Lean Product. You can go to meetup.com slash lean hyphen product. You can join the group for free and that way you'll get notified when there's a new event. All right. That sounds great. I mean, I've been following Dan for a long time. I get a lot of value out of his content. So definitely highly recommend checking him out. And I hope everyone enjoyed this. Great. Thanks a lot. Sean Joe was great. All right. Thanks, Dan. All right. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And we're not going to just talk to talk. We're going to walk the walk. So we would love if you go into your podcast products and leave us a review. Sean and I guarantee and are committed to reading absolutely every piece of feedback we get there. And not only that, but you're helping other listeners by getting that feedback in there. It helps us move up the search rankings so that other people can find the episodes. So thank you, everyone. <laughs>